0: Last summer, when the reality of the pandemic intersected with the protests over the killing of George Floyd, I heard a really disturbing story. And it almost sounded like a conspiracy theory with black helicopters and a secret police force operating with unchecked power. But it was real. It happened in Portland, Oregon in July. The city had already witnessed a sustained protest against police brutality and racism And then something strange happened. A protester was walking home one night when a dark gray minivan screeched to a halt. Men in camouflage grabbed the protester and shoved him into the unmarked van. They told him he was under arrest. But it was unclear who the agents were, who they represented, and what the charges were against the protest. Unlawful arrests of protesters are doing snatch and grab tactics now where they're putting people in cars without even telling them why they're being arrested. Um, the, um, uh, they'll just attack a line of protesters, grab a person, put them into an unmarked vehicle without even, without even giving charges. That's really scary. But it wasn't the only time something like this happened. As the summer dragged on, more videos started to surface. They have these masked agents in camo, armed to the teeth, throwing people into unmarked vans and driving them away. Now these agents, they're not the state or municipal police who are usually charged with keeping the peace in the United States. These were federal agents, but they didn't have any identification on them. They were usually reserved for anti-terrorist operations. And the identities of these agents, they were all kept secret. They never spoke. And then, there were reports of right-wing paramilitary forces that tried to kidnap, or at least had a plan to kidnap, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Now, the prospect of citizens being dragged off the streets without formal charges and paramilitary forces overthrowing parts of the government Well, that freaked a lot of people out. Protesters and paramilitary groups, they've exchanged gunfire, and there's been some casualties. And at the center of power, we have a populist president with authoritarian tendencies, clearly showing off for a loyal base and feeding into wild conspiracies that undermine democracy. Now this was something I'd seen and I'd studied for many years, not in North America or the United States, but in South America. I've been a Latin American studies professor an observer of the place for about 12 years. And I've watched rebellions and coups and dictatorships, but never did I think the United States would fall into the same trap of polarization, violence, and authoritarianism that Latin America endured for centuries. But that reality, it's here. And Donald Trump, he said plainly that he will not accept defeat on November 3rd. He spread misinformation about voting and undermined the very institutions of democracy. Sober-minded people, some of them actually Republicans, are warning of a coup. And in that scenario, Trump either contests the election until the inauguration, or he simply refuses to leave office. And that, that could lead to a standoff between Trump loyalists and military officers who are sworn to uphold the Constitution. And what happens then? Well, history can be our guide. Perhaps it can give us some signposts and maybe tell us what we can and can't do. So today on History X, Prelude to a Coup. We're going to look to Argentina in the 1970s and 80s to see what we can learn about how coups happen, how to survive them, and how to just deal in your own personal life as society starts to fragment around you. It's on History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school. And I'm your host, Russell Cobb. And my guest today is artist and author Luciana Errege. Uh Luciana, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, Russell. Um, thank you for having me here. Um, I was born in Argentina, immigrated to Canada, I did law school in Argentina, and then I raised my family in Canada, and late I decided to go back to school when I had you as my prof in Latin American studies. Um, After that, I went on to a master's in art history, and then on to a writer, and now I own a publishing house, uh, Labyrinth Press which publishes um, ESL authors and world literature in translation. That's the aim. So here I am.
0: That's wonderful. And you have a new book. You yes. Love. Yes.
1: Thank okay. you. Yes. The anthology that we produced as the first book of Laberinto Press called Beyond the Food Court, an anthology of literary Christians.
0: Can you take us back to those those years when you were little and tell us a little bit more about the political context, what was happening in Argentina?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I was just also thinking uh, if I had lived in a different context, what would I remember of my childhood? But the thing is that because we lived through very intense political experiences like guerrilla wars, everything that I lived through, I remember up until age eight, completely like an X-ray. I can tell you exactly, dates, smells, everything. So it's like I've never left that time, although I did. (laughs) So what happened was that when I was about five years old, which is when a child usually begins remembering things in a different context, other than the sensory, there were guerrilla guerrilla wars in, in my country. So there was from the same political party, there was an extreme right, called Triple A, and an extreme-left group called Montoneros. And those two groups fought for power within the Peronist Party, whose leader, General Perón, had been in exile since 1955 and was in Spain. He returned in 1973, and when he returned, all those extremist uh, tendencies became more and more evident and violent. So people got caught in the middle. Like, people were not involved in politics. Everybody got caught in the middle of these two factions. My parents, being young, in their 30s, they were keen to see what was happening with the left, you know, all the discourses, the literature that came with it, which was really, really good. So there was this cultural renaissance at one point, thanks to the advent of the left. The problem was that the left became increasingly violent, you know, Marxism accelerating the contradiction. So that's what they want, right? So um, going all, all in. Um, so um, with the good came the bad and, uh, and you were being permanently gaslighted as to what was happening. Um, so I, I don't have really political words to talk about that moment because I was a child and I lived as a child. So I can tell you that when they assassinated a union leader called Ruchi which was a very close friend of Perón, Montoneros assassinated him. Um, I was going in a car with my grandfather and my father um, to the countryside to visit my f- another family member so you know I just remember going on the road and they discussing oh they killed Rucci. Oh, what happened what's gonna happen next um, I remember that I had an uncle of mine who was a theatre director he was kind of a leftist guy leftist guy. and I um, I talk about him in, in the story in the book um, his father had survived the, the Spanish Civil War, and he was this, you know, Bohemian director and all that. I go to visit him at the city where he lived with my cousin, visit my cousin. And when I arrived, there were three bullet holes on the door, and it's because the AAA had shot his door. Um, in that visit, an aunt of mine who was expecting a baby comes up the stairs and says, oh, I just came from, you know, shopping. and." Um, You know, I was just walking and there was this package and someone said, excuse me, please do not step on that package. It might be a bomb. Then I had my father who lived in, uh, who worked in another city than where we lived. And every day he would come back and just tell my mom, there was a bomb in such and such place. And and it was all caused by these fights in between the right and the left.
0: Now, Luciana, they they were part of, even though they were, politically opposed to one another, weren't they all vying for the title of being Peronists or being the, yes. the legitimate uh, heirs of Juan Perón? Is that correct?
1: Yes, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Perón was this populist leader. He was a very astute man. and And by that, I don't mean he was a good thing. He was astute in the sense that he you know, tried to control the monster he had created, first co-opting unions, then kind of bypassing the tendencies of the left and being very unilateral in, in his approach and, you know, utilizing a binary language. And that's the other thing that I want to say. Sometimes if I, like, if I lack language to discuss populism, and you will see that with populist leaders, and you have to be very aware of that, and that's one of the pieces of advice that I have, is that they generate by their sheer discourse a a vacuum. There is this semantic cloud that we get involved in and we cannot get out of there. They construct this monstrous language bubble that we cannot move beyond because that's what they want. They don't want people to really establish dialogue and talk, they want to polarize. And the only way to do it is to create these languages and, and these structures where there is only one discourse that can be said, and then the other is just outside of that bubble. So we need to recover the ability to think like republics, and uh, but each of us a republic. So mm-hmm. internalize the notion of a republic, and that probably is my advice in terms of the United States. To internalize democracy and the practice of democracy in the real dialogue face-to-face with our fellow people
0: as as a as a dual citizen uh, a canadian and, and u s american the u s american side of me is 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 genuinely afraid right now when I see these stories about you know unmarked minivans rolling up into protests and just kidnapping protesters and then um, the sitting president saying he won 't concede unless it goes his way you know it makes me think of of some of these scarier regimes that that took power and you know, and, and in a full disclosure, you know, I feel like U.S. Americans always have this belief that we're somehow superior in our democracy, in our republic to others. And yet I think the same, we're, we're seeing the same things that you talked about, the demonization, the polarization, all those sorts of things. I want you to take us back to what daily life before the Proceso really took power. Yeah. What yeah. were what was, the, what was the climate like? Do you, I mean, you talked about those conversations in the well, car. Do you remember the fear that people had? Or was it just like you're a little girl and you don't get it?
1: No, it was, it, it, the fear was permanent. Um, at school, um, I was in second grade. I lived in a small, small town. The school door was closed when the kids went in because there were bomb threats the whole time. And so your parents had to ring the bell. They will let you in and you get your child. There was not like all the doors of the school open like before. So that was in the immediate time leading up to the coup. But at the same time, there was, so there was this mix of terror. There was also the collective grieving of the Peronist party, which were many, many people for the death of Peron, which was like a father figure. So um, and then there was the useless, useless widow of Perón, Isabel, at the helm. She inherited the presidency. She was completely inept.
0: As the assorted henchmen, party officials and ministers joined in the national hymn, they too must have wondered how much longer her presidency could survive. Here mortals the sacred call, liberty, liberty, liberty. Hear the noise of breaking chains, sang the crowd. On the sidelines, watching, listening, prepared, the army. Knowing that when Isabel is finally dislodged, they will surely inherit a crumbling economy, worsening civil disorder, and the ruins of a political dream, Peronism.
1: And she was surrounded by by people who didn't have the country's interest at heart and and also the political establishment in this cycle that Argentina had that you do not have yet. So I don't know what's going to happen in the States and the difference with the States is that we always used to knock and there was this saying to knock on the door of the military barracks, basically. So whenever there was a crisis in Argentina since the 1930s, it was a cycle. That democracy quite never arrived. So there were short interludes of civilian governments followed by longer periods of military uh, regimes. But it was the same civilians who were in legislative assemblies that would knock on the door of the military, like, hey, sort this mess out for us. And the boots would come. Right before Perón came, there was this Peronist president who was, but before there had military people. So the thing is that it became faster and faster, these alternative, you know, governments of civilian, military, civilian, military, up until the fall of Isabel Perón and the coup. So at one point, people just wanted reassurances that there was going to be some order, there was not going to be hyperinflation. I mean, it was very hard as middle-class people to live. And I'm saying middle-class people because at the time, Argentina was largely middle-class country with a very large middle-class population. Is that uh, how you know.
0: grew up in a middle-class household?
1: Yes, my father was a civil employee at a ministry. My mother was a teacher, nothing more middle class than that. But that was kind of like typical. It was nothing extraordinary, okay? And even the people that working in factories, they could access cars. I mean, you know.
0: As you said, it's like this didn't come out of nowhere. There was a back and forth between civilian and military government.
1: Yeah, and yeah. then
0: a great feeling of insecurity in the people. And then finally, you have a, the most repressive military rule of all. Can, do you remember when that happened and what that was like?
1: Yes, I remember. I remember what I was doing that day, on 1976, on the 24th of March. I was going to school, as always. I was in the third grade. At the time, I would sleep in a sofa bed in the living room of my house, uh, facing the TV. I wake up that day to go to school, and my mom says, yes, there was a coup. Isabel is no longer in power. And to tell you the truth, I was breathing a sigh of relief. It's like, oh, finally. <laughs> because the conversations around the table were like, everybody was so tense and distressed. And it just couldn't go on any longer. Like, there, it was not sustainable, really. It was not sustainable from what I heard. Uh, I largely saw the regime on TV. That's how you would see it, right? Because I live in a small town. Oh,
0: so it's like so- the first, like media, it's like that you think of like the media and how important the media is today in like trump and all that stuff but that's how you understood that it's i and
1: what- yeah you you saw you know the change of regime right away they deployed um advertisements right away it was I mean, they must have been preparing for ages because they enacted measures right away. They started kidnapping people. They started sending soldiers to small towns. Um, They deployed everything. It was like D Day. (laughs) They disembarked. And uh, because the the junta was the army, the navy, and the air. Air
0: Force?
1: Air Force, yeah. So it was the three powers there, yeah.
0: Do you remember any of those advertisements and any of those? Yes slogans can you share share that memory with us
1: yes i remember there was one where there was a little girl and a boy the girl was my age and the boy was like one of my brother's age so it was perfect right like i saw that it's like oh that could be me <laughs> so there was this you know the kids were playing and all of a sudden there is this bomb going off and then this music that is terrifying and the girl turns her, turns her face towards the camera and the male boy saying this is what terrorism in Argentina is doing to your family life or something like that. Yeah. And that was, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner. You would have all those other and other advertising yeah. like that. All that was on TV. So it was definitely state terrorism. What, what, what happened? It sounds
0: like gaslighting an entire population.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you tell us the anecdote? You Remember you were in a small town and you're a little girl and, and what happened?
1: Yeah. There was this retired police officer in my town that everybody knew and was friends with everyone. But when the military came, they asked him because there were these operations that the, the military was enacting where they would just sweep through towns, through little, little towns, didn't matter where, because they combed the whole country. And my town had 15,000 people. Um, my parents had Latin American literature and music at the time. But who of their age didn't? Ray Robastos and all the other, you know, Rodolfo Walsh, who was later disappeared. This retired police officer decides to give out names to these soldiers because they had to go through the operation in my town. And so he just put together a list of names of people that had been in politics, one way or, or the other. And so uh, my parents were on that list, uh, as was my uh, art teacher. And so... Um, one day, yes, my mother was expecting my little brother anytime. She was pregnant, heavily pregnant, and I was told that the soldiers were coming to my house. And I was, of course, terrified, but they had to tell me. They knew. At least it didn't catch them by surprise. They were waiting for the soldiers. I vaguely remember my father hiding his material in my grandfather's little cellar. Anyway, the soldiers came. One of them said, We're not going to do anything to you, to me. So they kind of reassured us. We were just searching. We're searching for things. They didn't tell us what they were searching for. They didn't bring, of course, search warrant or nothing. They just came in very polite, very fine. They searched. And my mother, you know, just next to me, I was clutching her. And I cannot remember any of anything else except that they left. At one point they left. And then I remember my father saying, oh, what a good thing that I hid all these, you know, discs and books and this and that. I remember that. But when I asked him, see, the gaslighting when you're a child goes both ways. It's the government that is gaslighting your parents. It's your parents that are gaslighting you because they don't want you to be afraid. So that's the thing. It's just like. Nobody is telling you the truth, and and you cannot blame them. They were scared too, and they didn't know how to process what was going on. So of course, you know you understand your parents now. Um, but anyway, when I asked them, it's like, hey, do you remember hiding this and that? And he will go, no, we didn't. No, I don't remember. And I know he did. Yeah, my father denies that, but I know that he did. See, that's the other thing. When you grow in an authoritarian country, authoritarianism just seeps through, penetrates all layers of society no matter how loving your parents are there will always be an authoritarian component in your family dynamics so it's all part of the same so it's just to untie that and to untangle that and that's why I think that there is a lot of hope for you guys and 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 I don't know I don't think it will be a coup I don't think you will go through dictatorship. yes I think that there is populism of the worst kind and be very aware but strengthen your institutions because that's something, that's the piece of advice <laughs> I have, <laughs> it's just like press on your legislators see what, ha- I mean, work work, work, work it's just a lot of a lot of civil awareness and uh, the awareness that you are a citizen that we didn't grow up with in Argentina mm-hmm. so, anyway
0: yeah, that's- oh that's great I'm glad you you mentioned about you you talked about your parents' attitude because that was actually really something I wanted to ask you, you know, I mean, it's how, how parents dealt with that. Do you, it seems like you could take um, a couple different tacks, like you could say, well, let's just, let's just pretend like everything is normal so the child has a sense of comfort and normalcy, or you could use it as kind of a, um, a teachable moment Um, But then you could also get yourself in trouble. That's another thing, right? If you're saying authoritarianism is seeping through the school system
1: as well. Uh, All I can say is that then later on, yes, talking to my father, yes, of course, they experienced fear. They just didn't let it show. My father, as I tell you the story, was in the story in the book was always making his asados. Those were, you know, that was religious for him. So they did also whatever they could to save their own sanity, right? Uh, Um, They kept working and I never heard them discuss, they didn't discuss any politics. And then when democracy returned, they took center stage in my town. They would just, you know, participate in the political life of my country and they woke up. They just like, they went to sleep, for eight years, they cowered like that. They just uh-huh. like, you know, that and cover. They, they managed the fear the best they could. They kept their family safe, well-fed, well-clothed, you know, like survival, I think. That it was a lot of survival mode, coping strategies there. And then when democracy returned, they returned to being active citizens. And
0: That's like that. amazing. So when we began this conversation, you said that living under uh, an authoritarian regime had taught you maybe some survival strategies that could be applicable to us, not necess- not even necessarily under an authoritarian um, figures, but under the pandemic. Can you talk about that? Like, what, what, what is what is living under authoritarianism to t- teach you about surviving a pandemic?
1: Well, it's basically that. Where my what my parents taught me that there are daily rituals that save you. What saved us were the asados from on Sundays. Uh, It was the mate drinking. It was um, these little things. And my parents helping us with homework or, you know, very, very inane, apparently inane routines, but enjoying the smallest moments with the family. And I know that other families live differently or larger. I mean, we still would go on holidays, you know, every, you know, every summer, same town, doing the same thing. So there was for them the resturance of routine that saved us um save them, I think. So, also, I wanted to contextualize that if you live through a dictatorship, you not only have survived, or not only do you survive, or you are a survivor, you know, like when, when, when political refugees are, you know, portrayed in, in, in North American media or whatever, or when you think of refugees, it's like, survive, they survive, no, 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 they thrive. Because that's why they are here. So you think of survivors as people who actually thrive, despite their traumas and despite their setbacks. The set of tools that I don't want to speak of for all survivors. I speak for myself. But um, what 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 living through that gave me was an appreciation, learning to read people, and and yes, overperformance is also a trauma response, but it's a productive trauma response. So also try to, trying to examine things. And in terms of the pandemic, I would say that, yes, the, the tools that I have is just self-discipline and, you know, just persisting no matter what. The world outside is falling, but hey, you're continuing. You are, you're okay. Yeah. It's this mental toughness that is inbuilt.
0: Well, that was my guest, Luciana Regue talking about surviving the Argentine military junta of the late 70s and early 80s. And, you know, when we started this show, we were talking about the possibility of a coup in the United States with the November election coming right up. And I don't want to try to freak anybody out or try to add to the already very tense environment that's going on right now. I just wanted to process this whole thing and think about how, if there is some sort of a coup, how to deal with it. So I thought I'd call up my assistant producer, Sabrina, talk to her, see what she took away from that conversation. When she was talking about the discourse of populism and authoritarianism, she used the like was like a vacuum where control of language. Is essentially a form of political control. And it was really interesting to me because I don't think we really talk about language being a mode of control. I mean, if we want to link it back to the US, then it's become more and more obvious that something as simple as the rhetoric that the president uses is impactful and makes waves across so many platforms, so many states, so many groups of people. She also spoke about how authoritarianism can like seep through to all levels. Again, maybe I can link it back to that whole idea of like a self-preservation thing. It's, you might not agree with the regime, but the, the fact that authoritarianism exists in your world means that you need to behave a certain way and interact a certain way within it. The use of language and media control, I thought was really interesting. I feel like there was probably maybe a moment, I don't know, 10 years ago when people were celebrating the internet and social social media and saying it's a new form of openness and dialogue and discovering new positions. But the more our internet age creeps along and calcifies into its political positions, the more it seems to resemble exactly what Luciana was talking about, about that there were certain talking points and information control and words and phrases and scenarios that controlled how people thought about things. And it just feels, it feels very immediate. It feels a more immediate than I thought it would. You've been listening to History X on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Today's show was written by Russell Cobb and co-produced by Russell and myself, Sabrina thorani Special thank you to this week's guest, Luciana Erege of Labrinto Press. Make sure to keep up with History X on Facebook and give us a follow at History X Pod on Instagram. See you next time.